Joe Milligan, thank you for coming on to South Coast Chronicles and uh, telling your story. I'm excited about this one because you and I have been friends for a minute and having some fun. So, Joe, you, you got sober what year? February 20th, 1994. 1994. That makes how many years? 29 years, 11 months, and a few days. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so tell me a little bit about just your beginnings and where you were born. And <laughs> Well, I was born in New York, in Syracuse, New York, actually. My uh, dad was a physician. He was... Uh, doing his residency in New York and uh, at Syracuse. And he'd been in the Navy. The Navy put him through medical school. He quit the Navy when he graduated. They sent him, they said, go to the Long Beach Naval Hospital. Okay. So he did. And he took the family out there, and that's how we got to California. And I grew up for a year in Seal Beach, then I moved to Newport. And I grew up in Newport. Went to Newport Elementary, you know, on the, on the ocean. How old were you when you moved to Newport? Maybe three. Maybe three. So yeah. you've been in Newport your whole life. My whole, my whole conceptual life, yes. Nice, nice. And uh, I... Uh, Grew up in Newport, fairly typical Newport kid. You know, I used to say that I grew up in the slums of my town. I grew up in the slums of my hometown, and I did. You know, I drew, there, there was a place I used to describe as, as uh, heavy police presence, a lot of renters, uh, very crowded housing, frolicking on the streets and drinking in the streets every night. You know, it's a terrible place. That was a terrible place, but it's a couple of houses off the ocean right. in the, on the peninsula. Yeah, and to me that was the, the slums because I wasn't on on uh, Lido Island, you the know, hardcore with the streets of Newport. Beach. The hardcore streets of Newport Beach, or the numbered go. streets, as the OC <laughs> used to call them. But uh, I was uh, not happy anywhere I ever was. I always didn't fit in where I was. I grew up with that that's that sense that so many of us have that I uh, that I wasn't where I was supposed to be. Right. Anytime, ever. And I did everything I could could to try and fit in. I joined the. I played football. I played baseball. I played. Uh, I played. Uh, Soccer. I, I early days of soccer. I went uh, joined the, the Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, and D Malay. I was in the Boy Scouts and D Malay at the same time, and I was trying to fit in somewhere. You know, yeah. I was trying to fit in somewhere, and I I uh, always felt like I was was in the wrong place. That I was meant to be somewhere else. So even when you were a little kid, you felt even that was a little way. kid that yeah. way. Yeah, and, and we hear it a lot. Yeah. You know, you hear that a lot. That's the, alcoholism is a disease of perception, but we were. Uh, you know, I I don't remember my first drink but I remember my first drunk so let me back up before we get to that let's tell me about your childhood and your family unit and oh my dad's a doctor like? my dad was uh, was a very busy physician he was an alcoholic and he was, was a, a but he was a it was, was in the 60s, 60s yeah. yeah he was a drunk but he was a, a, a really disciplined drunk he'd been in the Navy for 18 years he was a, a pilot and he flew into World War II he was older when he had me and he never let drinking interfere with everything with anything work-wise Never, nobody ever noticed. Right. But and he wasn't mean at all. Yeah. He just was, you know, he'd get drunk at, at family events every right. single time, right. and uh, you know it was embarrassing yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. And uh, and that's when when I when I started drinking, I bonded with him over that. But right. that was a long time after that. So you know, I didn't know what it was all. So about. what was your fam family unit like? I had mom, my my dad. father, my my mother, my little sister, who's uh, a few years younger than me, and she's a physician now. Uh, up at Long Beach Memorial, she's a triple-boarded uh, critical care pulmonologist. Yeah. So she went through the right way. I was supposed to be a doctor too, but it just never happened for me for obvious reasons. It got drinking and drugging got in the way of that. But uh, like I said, I don't remember my first drink. Okay. But I remember my first drunk. I was a man in uniform. I was a leader of men. I was uh, the uh, patrol leader of the Cheetah Patrol of Troop Five of the Boy Scouts of America. And how old were you? Oh, May 12. 12, okay. May 12. And I had, uh, I had my 
uniform on. I had right. my neckerchief on. I had my, my uh, boots polished, my brass shined. And I was supposed to go lead a meeting of the uh, troop, troop Five. I was all ready to go. A friend of mine called me up and said, my parents are out of town. We're opening the, the liquor cabinet. Come on over. And I don't remember there being, I never had a drink before that I know of. And I don't, uh, I, I don't know what led me to this, but I don't remember there being a, a second thought. Yeah. I'm supposed to be somewhere else. I have plans. I, I'm expected. Right. I went right over there and we, uh, in my uniform, and uh, we opened the liquor cabinet, poured a bunch of stuff in a, in, a, in a pitcher, put a beer on top of it, and put it in the refrigerator so the foam went down, and we all drank it down. And I defiled the Boy Scout uniform that night. I learned to drive the porcelain bus. And the funniest part of the whole thing was several of my old friends, these people I grew up with, my, my family knows them well. One guy says, I gotta get home, my dad's gonna kill me. So he walks out of the house. Two minutes later, he's at the door again. There's a banging on the door. He's standing there at the door. My mother's got him by the, by the collar. She dragged him back there. And she said she dragged me out of there, threw me home, and said, you're just like your dad. And I didn't mind that, you know? I, I knew that that was something I was gonna do again. I threw my guts up all night long, and uh, then knew I'd be doing it again. And from that moment on, I was somebody else. I belonged. I, had, I found my people. I became a, uh, a, a regular popular kid in my little group. Mm -hmm. I stayed in athletics. I stayed and played football for, for the next three years. I was always on the wrestling team until I broke both my shoulders my, late my junior year. But I stayed in all that. And in the uh, last two years of high school, I was a good student. I was in a, a special class that was for kids that wanted to be doctors. It was two years, four hours a day. And we had utter control of the school. We, had, yeah. they, we were the, the intellectual elite, apparently. We could go anywhere we wanted. So we did. And uh, I just ditched school all the time. Nobody ever chased me around. And, uh, and we, we would get fake IDs and drink. And by the time I went off to USC, I was pretty experienced with the whole thing. So what was high school like <clears throat> drinking? Was, was it out of control? Did you get in any trouble, have any consequences? Or was it just still the party and having fun? It was the party and having fun. This is the 70s, early to mid 70s. I mean, uh, it was, I, it was, there was a lot, of, a lot of fun at that high school. Something happened. I was, you know, kind of a weird kid, a, a, a chubby kid through my freshman year, through, through up until my freshman year. Something happened in the middle of my sophomore year toward my junior year. I got thinner. I apparently got a lot better looking. And my, my prospects with the ladies improved quite a bit. And uh, I had a, a really good time in, in high school in my last couple of years. I mean, it was a really good time. And uh, I, I could drink the way I wanted to mm -hmm. because it was actually, we had plenty of drugs. And uh, it was Harbor High. One of the funny parts, you, you'll appreciate this as a coach. You know where the, uh, the uh, um, that uh, nature center is? Yeah. The big nature center. That used to be what we called the gully. We'd have the gully run. We'd have to do this a couple times a week. All the, all the sports, we'd all have to take off and run through the gully. It was like a three-mile run. Run down there, run down the, to Coast Highway, run along Coast Highway, back up the other side. We just stopped in the gully, all of us. We'd just sit there and start lighting, do lighting joints. Yeah. And we'd come back. Crawling, crawling in, going, ah. and the, the coach would be, God, you got to slow down. You got to pace yourselves here. Yeah. It was funny. But, you know, high school was fun for me at the end, you know, for the last couple of years. I had a great time. And I didn't have any consequences for my drinking yeah. or my drug use. Yeah. And it was, it was flowing everywhere. And uh, I went off to USC planning to be a doctor. I planned on going there to, to, uh, to major in, uh, in uh, pre-med. Took my first... Uh, organic chemistry class and realized that my own organic, organic chemistry experiments were getting in the way of studying organic chemistry, so I dropped the pre-med major. My dad didn't seem to notice, which was 
bother me, but that's okay. And uh, went into the, uh, went, started heading toward the entertainment business. They wouldn't let me in the film school as a transfer student when it was already there, so I just took the film classes I could. And I produced The Consciousness on campus. And I had a good time there, too. We, we brought in, it was a freshman. It was the, 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 mid, the, the backside of the mid-70s. And uh, we had uh, this new music was coming in. And we got to play some really great bands. USC is an influential school. So the so you produced a concert on campus. A lot of them. And what kind of new music was coming in at that well, we time? We had ska. We had uh, a lot of the emerging <laughs> artists that were, were coming around from LA. They'd, they'd send them over to us. They wanted to get, the, the record companies wanted that, that college market. They really right. did. So they sent us some really good bands. They usually sent booze and drugs with them. And they invited us to the clubs yeah. to go see them, to see these bands that we wanted to, to put on there. And we did. My best friend was two years ahead of me. He was uh, running the radio station. And uh, we got, uh, we had that first couple of years when he was still at school, we got courted by the record companies. He went when he graduated to Chrysalis Records. He just got hired over there. And they, they hired me to do college promotion. So I went around the country with these bands like The Specials and Selector, this late 70s. So did you drop out of school to do this or did you just keep going oh, to no. school? Oh no, I ended up uh, uh, going off to, to I, I, I went to USC for five years mm -hmm. and uh, just kind of went off to a job. Yeah. And it was fun, you know, I had a really good time. I was in the record business for almost 10 years and I actually produced a movie, a lot of it shot right here in Newport, most of it shot in Canada, a lot in LA, terrible movie. I'll tell you about that if you want to hear about it. But, yeah. uh, we had Ernest Borgnine in it and Richard Roundtree. Richard Roundtree and I chased all over Vancouver looking for a bottle of uh, Glenlivet late one night. That was a lot of fun. But uh, I, we managed the uh, North and South American Affairs. We were working for the company. Did I didn't do it myself? I was a kid. But uh, we managed. We, the company managed the North and South American Affairs for English and Australian bands. We had the Fix. We had Ice House. We had Unmotion. We had all these these good bands. They were, they were touring all over the world. And uh, we had a good time, you know, and I could, I, I'd arrange my life so that I could drink and use drugs like I wanted to. So it's the 70s, you're, what kind of drugs were around in the 70s? Uh, oh, in the 70s, like, there was a lot of acid. I loved a acid. A lot of pot. A lot of pot, a lot of acid, but a lot of booze. You know, alcohol yeah. is my thing. I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. All the other things were the, were the icing. The alcoholic was the cake. They yeah. were the gravy. The, the alcohol was the beet. Yeah. But I loved everything. And I've got a story about that. But what happened in the, in the early 80s, that uh, just shocked everybody was Freebase. Right. All of a sudden there was Freebase everywhere. Everybody was doing right. it. And I was doing it. I was cooking up the Freebase with everybody else. And I was with some really famous people, some really wealthy people. And I watched people lose everything to this, mm -hmm. everything. And people that I knew were ending up losing their homes. People who they, they were losing homes in the Hollywood Hills and they were losing Ferraris and, having the, and losing careers in major, major record companies and studios. And it was, I was watching this happen. And I learned something, but I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't really have the context to understand it. I had the same cravings they had when I was doing the freebase. We'd make the freebase, I'd, I'd puff it up like everybody else, and, uh, and uh, I had the cravings till they were gone. But instead of like hawking my car to get another quarter ounce of Coke, I opened a bottle of scotch, drank about half that down, and all the other cravings went away. Right. Whenever when any of these other people would have a drink, they needed the Coke. That was what immediately led them to the Coke. And uh, they were the people who had complained about my drinking yeah. were uh, now, you know, addicted to this stuff. And I was happy about that. But it, it, on the other hand, it kept me loaded for a longer time because I remember it was around 88 and I was doing okay. You know, I, my world was good. It was kind of slipping away because I was really drinking a lot. You know that. I was drinking yeah. 
uh, from the first thing, I, first thing in the morning to the end of night. I mean, I put my, I'd wake up with a drink, I'd go to sleep with a drink. You know what it's like mm -hmm. for a for a functioning alcoholic. But uh, <clears throat> the uh, around 1988, a bunch of people started to get sober all of a sudden. They were mostly the cokeheads. They were mostly yeah. the people who were doing the freebase. And all of a sudden, there were people drinking Perrier, and uh, and uh, they were. Uh, hiking in the canyons and taking care of themselves. And I thought, well, you know, I should probably join that. I should probably clean myself up too. So I quit drinking in 88. I just, just stopped. And then a day or so later, I was sweating and I was sick to my stomach and I, my, my head hurt and everything hurt in my body. And I thought, mm -hmm. man, I got the flu. I better try this when I feel better. Yeah. Because <laughs> I had no idea what withdrawals were. I'd never right. tried to quit before. And uh, I went from 88 to 94, going in and out of AA, watching my whole life slip away from me. Mm -hmm. Everything that I'd, I'd worked for, everything that so I'd been good at. So you married at this time? Or no, no, no. Not yet? No, no. <coughs> you're just a single guy working oh, in the Oh, I was a single guy, street. yeah. I was a single guy and still that was working. So yeah. I was having a good time with that. So I wasn't in any hurry to, to lose that part of my life. Uh, the, uh, so I hadn't been married. I, uh, lost, I, I essentially lost everything. Finally, around mid-90s or early 90s, like 1990, I decided that it was L.A. I decided it was the, the business that was killing me. And I had to quit. I had to go back to back home. So I went, and I'd lost a lot by then. So I did what any good alcoholic does. I moved to my mother's house in yeah. Newport. Went back home. And uh, you know, I thought I'd get better, but I didn't. I started working with my dad to develop properties. I learned, went back to school and got some, continuing some more education in uh, cognitive psychology and, uh, and uh, neuroscience uh, at the University of Maryland. That was fun. But uh, I, uh, we started working in, uh, in, uh, Dementia care, because my dad was a neurologist. That's what he treated, and uh, I got pretty good at that. I started working for a. Uh, I, well, that was after I got uh, sober. But anyway, we were building a, a, a townhouse complex, and that townhouse complex is right down in Victoria. It's a salmon-colored place, Victoria and, uh, and Canyon Drive. I built that place, and it's beautiful. But I had a good team working on it. I drank through the whole thing, and I would be the first one on camp uh, on the on the site, the last one there, the last one to leave. And I was drinking at that time, I know because I was counting, uh, two liters of, of 100 proof Smirnoff a day. And there, I was buying the, the 500 milliliter, quarter liter, quarter liter bottles. Uh, and I'd take them, they fit in my briefcase. So I'd take them in there and I'd, I'd drink in the trailer and hide them, nobody, I thought nobody knew. And uh, at the end of the day, I'd come out and I didn't want them to find the bottles in the, in the trash. So what I did was I'd slide them inside the walls in the first two units. I dropped them inside the walls where it was being built. A lot of bottles. A lot, a lot of bottles on the walls. A lot of bottles on the walls in that place. <laughs> and then I, I sold it to the place. I, we, yeah. It was another real estate recession. I was about to lose all that. You know, my dad was, was out. He didn't have any crew. I was there all alone. And I got a real estate broker's license and sold it myself. Drunk. So that's funny. You kind of talk about you. You knew exactly how much it was because you were accounting at that time. Was, your, was it in your oh, mind? Over years. That, that were, went on for years. You were trying to control oh, yeah. and enjoy it. I was it. trying to control and enjoy it. Are going to have this much? And Yeah. Yeah. And I watched what I was drinking, and I counted every drink I had. I remember when we had a, a construction supervisor, a great guy with a, a master's in, I might have had a doctorate in engineering from Germany. Mehdi was his name. He was originally Persian. But uh, he was a great guy. He taught me a lot that I know about engineering and construction. I learned a lot. But he'd see me, and he'd say, Joe, how are you feeling today? I said, oh, I'm pretty good, pretty good. He says, I think you're not so good. You know we have an inspection today. Perhaps I will talk to the inspector. And he took care of me that way. And uh, and. So I did the consequences, the big consequences didn't hit me for a long time. And I appreciated that, but uh, it probably was not helpful. Anyway, big recession, 
the bank's about to take all these places away. I'm drinking like I'm drinking. And uh, I'm still going in and out of AA down in Newport. You know, mostly going to the, the you know, still living in my mother's house, you know, on 41st Street. And uh, I remember it was, it was uh, I'd been going out and standing on a bridge and plotting my suicide. I would stand on this bridge and look and, and plan my suicide. Now, it's the bridge to Lido Island. It's 10 feet over the water. It's not Suicide Central. But I, and I jumped off it all the time in the summer when I was a kid. But I stood there and planned my suicide. Well, it's February 20th, 1994. It's a, a Sunday night. And I'd been to the Newport Club quite a few times, most of the meetings. And I stood there and, and planned my suicide and then chickened out of it and went home. I started walking back to my mother's house and I walked past the Newport Club at the uh, coffee break for the Sunday night speaker meeting. So they're out in the, in the, in the street out in front drinking coffee and smoking. And uh, somebody saw me. They knew who I was because I'd been there a lot. Somebody took me inside, sat me down, gave me half a cup of coffee, and the speaker came on. And I don't know what she said. I think she was pretty. I don't remember much about anything, but I remember I heard my story. Mm-hmm. I heard what, what she said was how I felt. And that was the first time I really had felt that. I've been sober ever since that night. That's my sobriety date, February 20th, 1994. And it's been a journey. What do you think happened to you that night as opposed to the other nights you sat in AA? Had you heard your story before you felt like, or was that like the first time you felt if I like wasn't, If I'd heard it, I wasn't listening. Mm-hmm. It was that connection, that mm-hmm. sense that this is where I belong, right. that these are my people, yeah. that they understand me. And I've, I've, that thing that I've been looking for when I was a kid mm-hmm. that I thought I found in, in liquor, right. that I thought I found in drugs, that I thought I found in that whole milieu that I was in for so many years. I found this, this milieu that, that worked for me instantly, and I felt like I was a part of this thing that night. And I realized it was a, uh, a, uh, a spiritual experience. I, I, was, I was having a spiritual experience that I didn't recognize until it was over. Right. I was, uh, it was those last few days before that, people had been coming around me. My aunt, who I love very much, she was from the South. She, she made me her famous fried chicken and brought it mm-hmm. over to me, just because she thought I needed some fried chicken. It was thoughtful. My sister was in her residency. She'd just gotten out of medical school. She was in her residency. And uh, she was supposed to be back at UC Davis, hospital in Sacramento, but she stayed because mm-hmm. she was worried about me, obviously. And all these people were around me, and I was getting pushed, but I didn't know it yeah. until I walked that, 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 that right time right into that meeting. Yeah. And, uh, it was a, and I felt the presence of God. I felt the presence of something greater than myself. Uh, and I'd felt it all along. I just wasn't recognizing it as that. Mm-hmm. And when it was over, when I was sober, I looked back and I said, oh my God, I was pushed here mm-hmm. through a power greater than myself. It was amazing. Right. It was the most amazing thing in the world. And of course, I've been sober ever since. So had you ever, before you got to that point, tried to get a sponsor, tried to work the steps, or you'd just kind of gone to some meetings? Oh, just gone to some meetings. It out? Yeah. And so like, what happened in that like, first week or that first Oh, I gotta tell you this, this is good. There was this guy. We were trying to sell it. I had, had the, uh, the office in one of the units. There's 12, 12 condos, 12, 12 really nice townhomes. They're, they're very expensive. And we, I'm trying to sell them, but it's a, it's a real estate recession. You know, there's, mm-hmm. Nobody's buying. So we're in this place. This little guy named Paul, he was a loan broker. He mm-hmm. lived in the area. He came and said, let's work, work on it together. All the loans, you can do the thing. This, this cheerful guy. Drove me nuts. Mm-hmm. Cheerful as hell. And I just go, oh, God. He, he shows up at 6 in the morning. He's ready to sell houses all day long. And uh, you know nobody shows up, so I'd find, I, I just love the guy, but he was he gave me a headache most of the time. And uh, I remember he came back that next day, and uh, I I was at the office early in the morning like I always was, 
and uh, I couldn't sleep anyway, you know. And uh, he says, let's sell them houses. I said, yeah, Paul, you know, I, I don't know if you know, but I've been drinking a lot. I, I went to, to uh, AA last night, and I think I'm going to stay in AA, and I just feel just terrible right now. This is right day now. one sober. Day one sober. Yeah. I see. I feel just terrible right now. And he said, "Oh my God, I waited for you to say that. I got two years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been waiting for this." <laughs> yeah. And he took me. He said, "You're going to show up at the at Shark Island at six o'clock tomorrow morning." Right. I said, "No, hell no." He said, "You're not sleeping anyway. Yeah. Just show up." Yeah. So I showed up at uh, Shark Island the next morning. That's where I met my first sponsor, Jim Relvis. Okay. Jim R. And uh, I uh, met him, and uh, and he took me through the steps. And my life changed, you know, yeah. everything changed from that moment on. I became, uh, I ran, uh, I was a, a typical newcomer. I went uh, to uh, all these places. I remember Mike M, you know, you, you've, you've heard about him. Yeah. He and I were about the same age and about the same sobriety. We were mopping the floors together for the first couple of years. We went everywhere together. And, you know, I've got these trudging buddies that I still have almost 30 years later. And they're all still here. Not Omar, but a lot are. And... Uh, We'd do all this, and, and we, we kept going up. It was Jack Riley. I don't know if you remember him. I do remember Jack, yeah. He was the one who suggested we go see the Pacific Group. So yeah. we'd gone up and see the Pacific Group on a Wednesday night. And there was, we'd go up every Wednesday night. There was a group of us. And there were sometimes two people in a car. Or there was 20, 10 cars. We'd be going up to L.A. to see eat dinner and go to the big Pacific Group meeting, which we loved. You know, it was a lot of fun. And... Uh, my sobriety was uh, was getting better. I mean, the world was uh, was opening up to me. My uh, my job opportunities were getting better. I was developing more things. I was getting really good at at, uh, at uh, dementia care because I knew what I was doing there, mm-hmm. and uh, opportunities were coming in that area. And uh, there was Sharon C. and uh, she was a, a big circuit speaker, well known. I'd seen her at the the ninety four international, ninety five international, and. Uh, she had, she'd be speaking all over the place. There's a woman, a young woman who uh, usually was with her. And she'd do the 10 minutes often. She'd be, and for a year or so, I tried to talk to her. And she looked at me like I was something she'd found on the bottom of her shoe. Mm-hmm. And I uh, talked to her occasionally. She'd <sighs> here he is again. And go on. And then at the Pacific Group, they have this, this, uh, uh, credit, this Christmas card thing. Mm-hmm. You sign up for the Christmas cards, you've got to write 400 Christmas cards. And you get 500 Christmas cards. It was, it was something. So we're standing in line. I'm saying she's in front of me. And it was in November of uh, 93? Yeah. No, 90, no, no, November of 95. And uh, 96. Yeah, November of 95. And uh, she was standing in front of me. And I said, oh, hi. I said, hi. I said, oh, I was, got here early. I didn't have any dinner. Have you had dinner? She said, no, no, no. I said, let's get some dinner after the show, after the meeting. She went, <coughs> and marched off. Came back a couple minutes later and said, okay. Apparently she'd gone and talked to Sharon, her sponsor, and she said, oh, he's one of those nice Newport guys. Go out with him. We were together ever since. You know, we, we got, uh, we, we, I proposed to her on Valentine's Day. That, how, how long were you sober when you met her? Like when you, had, when you went on that dinner? Yeah, a little three years. Three years, okay. I guess it was, it was November, it was, it was coming up on, uh, it was coming up on three years. It was November 96, so I'd gotten sober in February 94. Mm-hmm. So it was coming up on three years. Yeah. And uh, she had like six years. She got sober very young. She's much younger than me, but she got sober young. And uh, I, you know, we started going out, and we were we were together for a long time, and it was a good time. It yeah. really was. It was a good marriage. We had uh, two great kids. They're 21 and 23 now. It was a good marriage. We had a lot of fun, and uh, we were that AA couple. You know, right. we were the ones we'd say, oh, we sit in the same place. 
We had uh, our sponsees would, would, would show up and come around us. We had chair, my, her sponsor, my sponsor was her sponsor's husband. So we were this, and he was also a big circuit speaker. So we were, you know, pretty well known. And it was fun. And uh, I worked and did these things. And, and uh, I ended up at uh, C.B. Richard Ellis as one of the directors of healthcare doing, doing uh, really dementia care with hospitals. Mm-hmm. And it was a good job. It was a good place. So I'm coming up in 15 years of sobriety. And they're planning, they have these, these parties at, at the Pacific Group. You've got to have a party for 10, 15, all those years. And they, hundreds of people come. It's a big deal. We're starting to plan the, the party. And uh, I, at the time, had left CB and joined a group of partners. We took over the, the uh, 15 acres next to Chapman Hospital. And we were going to build a 330-unit proprietary CCRC. We had all the plans. We worked on it for two years. We, had it, uh, we were schmoozing the, 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 comp- the, the neighbors, trying to get the approvals to build it. We got the approvals, the plans, soil mediation. It was a, a, an expensive prospect. And uh, coming up in 15 years, and uh, right before Christmas, my ex-wife told me that uh, she'd hooked up with her, uh, or met her, her high school boyfriend on uh, Facebook, and they needed to be married, and I needed to go. Oh, wow. Could have hit me with a, the two-by-four, and I wouldn't have been more surprised. At the same time, the housing crisis hit. Yeah. And, and all of a sudden, there was no equity in people's homes, which is what you pay for senior housing with, right. so no bank would finance this deal. Right. So there I was, I lost the deal and my marriage at 15 years sobriety, all at once. Mm-hmm. It was gone. I had nothing left. So what I did is what a good alcoholic does, went back to my mom's house. Yeah. And uh, I stayed there. And that was a good time because my mother was getting older and she needed the help. But there was a recession going on. There was just nothing happening in right. the world. And my kids were, were young. They were coming down a lot. But I started over back in Newport like I did before. I didn't drink, which I'm thankful for. But I started, I went to the same meetings I originally got sober at. I stood at the, at the front yeah. and, and uh, greeted people yeah. and uh, shook hands. And, and I started over like a newcomer. Right. And so, I rebuilt my life from there. Yeah. So I want to back you up a little bit, I, I, you know, if it's okay. Sure. That first, uh, you know, three years of sobriety, you know, where you got a sponsor and worked the steps. Like, talk to, for people that don't know, talk to, talk to me about, like, how that changed you. It was an amazing time. It really was. I, I really loved being a newcomer. I loved making friends. Mm-hmm. I loved the. Fr- I still, you know, got these friends that I made when I was new over the first couple of years. That are, most of them are still around today, and we're still very close. Mike, uh, Ronnie, you know, all these people who uh, we we trudged together. We were, we were trudging buddies. Mm-hmm. We did all these things together, and uh, and we 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 uh, what we did was 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 smart. We uh, got in the car. You know, somebody says, just get in the car. We didn't ask questions. Somebody said, we're going to a meeting. We said, okay. We didn't say, what meeting? Where is it? What are we going to do? Who's going to be there? We just said, okay, right. and got in the car. All of us did, together. And, uh, and we stayed sober because of that. And we had uh, big adventures because of that. Because we'd yeah. go to San Bernardino for our, our, our Santa Barbara or Bakersfield a couple of times for a yeah. meeting. And uh, we were... Uh, just doing that. And somebody was always willing to take us. Somebody was always saying, hey, you guys get in the car. And mm-hmm. we said, okay, and got in the car. That's the biggest thing I can, could, could tell anybody. That's what I deal with a lot. Right. You know, I, I take people to good meetings, yeah. clients and people, I take them to good meetings. And the thing that drives me nuts is when they're saying, well, what meeting is it? What's it like? Who's going to be there? Yeah. Do they have a break? Mm-hmm. I say, no, just get in the car. Right. Get in the van, you know? Right. <laughs> but that's what I suggest that people do. 
the uh, early sobriety was a matter of changing the way I looked at the world, changing the way I looked at relationships, changing the way I looked at people, learning to have fun at things that would have made me sick earlier, and uh, sick to even think about, like getting in a car full of, of uh, nerdy, nerdy people yeah. and going to a meeting in Bakersfield. You know, yeah. what the hell are you going to do? So, and that kind of thing became the best thing in my life. Right. And I don't know when it was a shift, but there was a shift. And this happens to a lot of people. I've seen it happen a lot. Suddenly you just hate it until all of a sudden you don't yeah. and you love it. And yeah. it's a shift that happens really fast. And I always, I always quote Abraham Lincoln who said, uh, most people are just about as happy as they make up their mind to be. Mm-hmm. That's a true quote by Abraham Lincoln. I didn't just read it on the internet. But uh, it's the truth. If you just make yeah. up your mind that you're gonna enjoy it, you will. If you make up your mind you're gonna hate it, you will. I remember for me, the meeting I sat in where I was hating it, mm. I just was there because I needed to be and I knew I needed to be, but it wasn't fun. And then I remember getting done with the meeting and I remember the exact meeting going, that was a great meeting. And then I thought to myself after that, I just thought that was a great meeting. <laughs> you know, like, I know. Yeah. And so there is a shift. I, I, you know, and I think that happens to all of us that, that keep, keep trudging. And, and you know, we have way. sayings that we repeat and they're, 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 they sound like cliches, but they're cliches because they're true. Mm-hmm. You know, they're true. You, you, how long do I have to go to meetings? Until you want to go. Right. You know, these are, and you suddenly want to go. But the thing that I keep telling the people that we deal with every day, and we deal with a lot of them, they come from all over the country. The thing that I keep telling them is that they're the luckiest people in the world. Mm-hmm. You can't throw a rock without hitting a meeting around here. And they're yeah. good meetings. And you're gonna meet great people. You're gonna find your people someplace around here. And not all the rest of the country is like that. You know, we're, we're very lucky here to have the kind of meetings we have, the kind of, of recovery community that we have. And the people who have gone to the meetings with me and, and that I like, the meetings where somebody's going to challenge you. Somebody's going to come up and say, hey, here's my number. Call yeah. me tomorrow. And, and uh, these people have been, I keep seeing at the uh, meeting I go to Sunday night, I see four or five people who are former clients. Right. And they're doing well. Right. You know, they're doing well. They keep coming to the meetings. And they meet mm-hmm. people. And they're, they're talking to new people. And this yeah. is, makes me happy. Yeah. You know, it makes me really happy to see that. Yeah. So the thing that I, I try to tell the newcomers, the people who really don't want to be there. I mean, nobody wants to be in rehab. You know that. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they come there when there's no other choice. Yeah. So it's up to us to find them a way to mm-hmm. enjoy it. Yeah. And make them, and, and, and even if we have to force them sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes you've got to grab them by the scruff of the neck and make yeah. them do it. Yeah. But like happened with me, the shift happens. Right. And some of these people, when the shift happens, you just, you're watching, you're amazed yeah. to see it, yeah. aren't you? you yeah. You've seen it. Yeah, it's just, absolutely. God, it's a, you're, you're a different person, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and I love that about this, yeah. about what we do. Yeah. Okay, so back, back, getting back on track on your story. You're 15 <laughs> years sober, divorce, get a divorce, housing crisis, housing crisis hits, a lot of people struggle during that time. Back at your mom's house, recommit, rededicate, Hmm. Start doing things the normal way. Tell me, yeah. tell me what happened from there. Well, I spent several years just really taking care of my now elderly mother and bringing my kids down. My mm-hmm. mother, they were only grandkids, and she was 80 years old before they were born. We start late in my, in my family, so she was 80 years old before they were born. And uh, I'd bring the kids down, and they'd spend time around their grandmother, and I'd take care of her, get her to places, and make sure she was well. And I, you know, I didn't want to do that either, yeah. but I'm grateful that I did. I'm grateful that I, I was there at the time that she needed me the most. Right. It wasn't something I wanted to do at all. Yeah. 
but I was trying to you know start something else, mm-hmm. trying to get something else new going. And I never wanted to be in the treatment business. Right. You know, I never really liked it very much. I was I'd, more than 15 years when I finally got into it. But I didn't, you know, I'm one of those people who was, would sit at the meeting and say, oh, here come the treatment centers yeah, again. Me too. They're gonna come and, uh, and uh, eat all the cookies and, and drink all the coffee and not put a freaking dime in the basket. And uh, we're gonna pay for them. And, and somebody else getting paid for them to be here. Mm-hmm. So, tick me off, I didn't like it. But I ran, I, I had to get something, I had to do something. I had a real estate broker's license that I'd gotten to sell these places, I still had the license. So I did what was just anathema to me. I went to a, a real estate, a, a residential real estate place in, in Huntington Beach and said, I got a license, I'd like to sell some houses. And I went into residential real estate. Now I didn't sell any houses, I didn't do very well at that because I hated it. But I met a, a young lawyer there who uh, was a trust lawyer. He was a, uh, a uh, doing some real estate work on the side and he wanted to kind of be around that place. So he was around there a lot. He had a good friend who was one of the brokers there. And uh, we started talking. And uh, he said he had this client who was a psychologist who wanted to start a treatment center. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about Tom. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was talking about this, this, this friend of his. So we went up and met and talked to him. And uh, we uh, all sort of hit it off. We decided to go build a bigger treatment center. First, an outpatient treatment center. And I did a lot of you know, talking around the recovery community because I didn't want to, I've never sold what we do in the recovery sure. community. I just, that's, a, that's just against the rules. Yeah. But, you know, I, I knew a lot of people and I'd been sober a long time, so I, we built it up. Then somebody that I had uh, sponsored uh, who had some money came to me and said, hey, I hear it's starting a treatment center, I want in. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to invest. Turns out he had actually gone through South Coast Counseling yeah. some years before. And he knew the people who ran the place. Now, at the time, South Coast Counseling was acting as an alternative sentencing facility. They didn't, they didn't really do any treatment. They didn't, didn't take insurance. Right. They had uh, just uh, uh, Bob, who was at uh, CADC, I think, uh, and uh, he was uh, a KDAC, and uh, he was case managing, really. Right. And they had maybe five people in there, yeah. so they were suffering. And we went in and said, we, we have a team of psychologists here. We have, a, we have mm-hmm. uh, an EIN. We can, we can bill insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe if we bring in our treatment over here, we can bring in some more people. Yeah. So we did. We brought it in. And uh, my good friend Bruce, who was an old friend of mine, called him up. He filled the place up almost immediately. Right. We didn't have a staff. We didn't have a 24-hour day staff. Mm-hmm. So I moved in there the first yeah. four months. I lived there. Moved into South Coast Counseling. Moved into South Coast Counseling, yeah. in, the, in the, the, what's now the Med Office. There was a, a bed in there, and I lived there for at least four months. Brought my kids down there, it was, it was something. But, uh, you know, those were the good old days. It was mm-hmm. the, wild, the Wild West. We had these, these, all these people, and I was, mm-hmm. I was with them 24 hours a day. I was driving the van, I was getting them food, I was taking them to the movies, I was getting them to the, 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 the office to do their group mm-hmm. with the psychologists, and, uh, and we'd go off together and just do things. We'd, we'd say, hey, everybody in the van, we're gonna go bowling. Right. Everybody in the van, we're going to a meeting. Yeah. You know, and that was when I really got that, get the, just get in the van, don't ask me questions. Yeah. And it worked, and it was a lot of fun. We were always pretty sure we were gonna be out of, out of money the next month, and out right. of business, within a month. But we made it yeah. through the whole thing. You know, we made it, and we built it up from there into what you become a part of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, was, it was a wonderful time. But I got to use what I was using for years on, uh, 
on treatment centers. But what I did uh, was made them behave at meetings. Yeah. I take them to good meetings, not the ones that that uh, where there's a lot of right. of pretty girls. You know, well, they're all pretty they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. Alcoholic women are very good looking. Mm-hmm. But uh, I brought them to, to the good meetings where somebody would challenge them. Somebody would walk up and say, hey, here's my number. Call me tomorrow. Right. I wanted them to be challenged. And that worked. You took the get in the car from when you were a newcomer oh, to yeah. the get in the car there. Yeah. Get in the van. Yeah. 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 Just get in the van. Yeah. We're going to a meeting. Yeah. And, uh, and that was good. And mm-hmm. we got known at the time because I put money in the basket so for when them. You start, when you start, when you got started, that was what, nine years ago, something like that? More than that, yeah, but about yeah. less than 10, more than nine. So was the fentanyl, it wasn't no. as bad back then, right? No, and I've got stuff to say about that. Yeah, we'll get to that, but I just at that time it was, no. yeah. We had a lot of meth at the right. time, uh, a lot of meth. Some alcoholics, frankly, I don't like to keep alcoholics in treatment very long. Right. I think they really need to be in the community. Mm-hmm. I mean, they need a detox. It's the most medically complex detox you have, that and, uh, and benzos. They're medically complex. There's dangers to it. So we detox them. But I want to get them out into the community and actually doing things more quickly. Opiate addicts and meth addicts, they need more processing time to let their brains yeah. reset. But we bring them in. We had, we had, we had, but we had, we had a lot of heroin, you know. Yeah. We had a lot of opiate addicts. And then I remember, well, you want to, you want to hear this whole story about sure. the whole thing when it yeah. came up? We were doing this when it was just heroin. Right, and right. it was not that we had our, our problems, and, and people would, would get antsy and they'd leave. You yeah. know, they'd say, "I got to go, I got to go, I got to go," and they did. They'd yeah. leave. They'd come back in a week, two weeks, you know, a couple of days with some new arrows sticking to their butts, mm-hmm. some uh, new war stories, and they start over and usually did pretty well. Then all of a sudden, this this uh, we started seeing the doctors prescribing this oxycontin and and Percocet and things like that, and all of a sudden there's this pharmaceutical synthetic opiates that are everywhere, right. and we're getting people from all over the country and and uh, and. So that started happening right kind of when you guys started is when that kind of started, but it wasn't Kind of, yeah. It, was, it, was, yeah. it wasn't big yet. It was in the first, like, two years. All of a sudden, yeah. there's this stuff. And we thought this was bad. You know, yeah. it, it made our, our, our job more complex by an yeah. order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. But to be frank, most of the people who came in, or at least a great deal of them, were not really addicts. They were people who'd gone to the doctor. They'd mm-hmm. gotten this prescription. They'd become physically and emotionally dependent upon it, mm-hmm. physically and psychologically dependent on it. They responded well to treatment. They didn't want to be in this world. Right. We had a lot of people who responded well to treatment, right. and uh, they'd go back to their world. But the 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 the, pia, the, pia, the uh, peanut gallery got very upset about this. Grandma's an addict now, mm-hmm. so all of a sudden it was uh, it was everybody's down and screaming at the doctors, screaming at the, the, the pharmaceutical companies to stop this, and they did. They started prosecuting the uh, doctors. They started making it very difficult to get, and. Uh, and they switch. The people would go back to the dealers, and they'd get these counterfeit pills that would kill them. We didn't know what it was at the time, mm-hmm. but we heard about it, and we figured it out, and we said, we tell them, you, you guys, if you go out there and try this again, if you try that heroin, if you try one of those pills that you get from your dealer, it might be fentanyl, mm-hmm. and it's so powerful, 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine, it might kill you. Right. As a cohort, the addicts generally said, that sounds great, give me some of that. Mm-hmm. So. They just started providing fentanyl. Nobody even pretends anything else anymore. Yeah. It's just fentanyl everywhere. I had an interesting experience, two interesting experiences, and this was not long ago. The uh, uh, LA Times came out with an article that said that uh, opioid-induced, opioid overdose death rates went up mm-hmm. from 2016 to 2021, 15, uh, 150%, or 1,500%. Right. Which means 1,500%, which means for everybody who died of an opioid overdose in 2016, in 2021, 15 died. 15, yeah. yeah. That's horrifying. That's a horrifying number. 
the other side is is the uh, there was it was on CNN. I've saved the story. You can see it. There was these two brothers. They had pill mills in Florida. They had all these mm -hmm. pill mills. They were selling all these oxycontins all over the place. Well, they went to prison, mm -hmm. and uh, one of them got out. Not, not not long ago, in the last year, and he said, "Look, we didn't make the addicts. They came to us, right. but they knew what they were getting, and they were getting the stuff from the pharmacies. You know, they knew what they were taking every time. Now yeah. nobody knows. Nobody has any idea what it is, yeah. and they're dying like crazy. Yeah. And I thought about that. You know, how you how do you interpret that? That's that's true. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now, what's going on? Another thing that I saved a story about is in the last few months, last year or so." The Taliban in Europe, I was asked to be on a podcast in, in Amsterdam uh, because they're terrified of fentanyl. They don't have it yet, but they get a lot of cheap heroin from Afghanistan. But right. now the Taliban has, has stopped opiate production, opium production in, in uh, Afghanistan. So now the people who think about this in the way we do yeah. in Europe are terrified that that cheap heroin is going to dry up and fentanyl is going to be over there. And that's probably what's going to happen. That's probably what's going to happen. Yeah. So they're, 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 yeah. the thing is, we don't treat fentanyl well. Yeah. Fentanyl so alters the neural yeah. pathways, yeah. and especially these young right. people, that they have no defense. Yeah. They have no defense. They, uh, they, and, you know, they spend, what, 21 days inpatient? Yeah. And when they, they leave inpatient, they're supposed to go to their sober living back home, wherever they are, they're supposed to have their money, their, their freedom, and just be there for the, the group during the day. But some fentanyl's, fentanyl's easier to get at the bag of Doritos now. Yeah. And it comes across them, and they're going to dive on it. And they come mm -hmm. down, back to us and say, oh, you know, I'm, I, I didn't mean to do that. I'm so sorry. Take me back, please. So we do. Mm -hmm. And then the insurance company gives them 15 days instead of, yeah. instead of 21. And they go out even less prepared. It's a terrible, terrible downward spiral. It's a cycle. Tell me about the first time, like, you know, I, I mean, I, I can remember mine, but the first time you, you experienced a tragic event with somebody not making it with fentanyl. Oh, I can't even count them anymore. Yeah. You know, we had, uh, we had, uh, the thing is that, that, like I said earlier, when they, uh, when it was just heroin, they'd get mm -hmm. antsy, they'd leave. They'd come back with some arrows sticking out of their butts, yeah. they'd come back with some more stories. Now they get, uh, once that started, they get uh, antsy, they go out, because they will, same thing, and they're dead in 24 hours. Yeah. We've heard that so many times. I can't count how many we times we've heard that. We still hear it every month. Yeah. But then we had our own people. We had Larry. Mm -hmm. We yeah. had, uh, uh, Oh, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name, but the, with the funny hat, he was worked for us where I was playing. And, and yeah. all these people that we yeah. knew closely were, mm -hmm. were going. And they were, they were just dying all over the place. We've had, I mean, Larry was the first one of somebody that I knew really well, I think. Yeah. Uh, it might have been some before that. Some of the clients that I knew pretty well were gone. Mm -hmm. But Larry was a surprise to me. He was your bud. He yeah. was my bud. He was our yeah. bud. He yeah. was a, 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 a good dude. We loved him. And Jesse was the one that just knocked me out. Yeah. Jesse almost killed me. Yeah. You know, the thing is about Jesse is everybody said he saved so many lives. He was uh, such a wonderful person. And I can't get over, to this day, just being mad at him mm -hmm. for this. Yeah. I'm just, I, I've got to work through this, this sense of anger that, mm -hmm. uh, that he knew better. Right. You know? And he left us. Mm -hmm. And he had to see it coming. Yeah. You know? And it just feels personal. Yeah. But I take every one of them personally. Yeah. My first one was about four years ago. I mean, I had a lot of people that I heard about, but mm -hmm. uh, it's right when I first started working in treatment. and uh, We went to talk to this kid to try to talk him into coming into SCC, right when I first started with you guys, and he just needed one more day. His dad called me that night, and he died, and it was those pressed pills, and I was like, wow, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's a, 
it's a sad, sad epidemic we've got going. So talk to me a little bit. Like, I, like I want to explore what you're something we were talking about a minute ago. It's like the whole like cycle, the broken cycle of treatment and the insurance companies and trying to help people. And the light does go on for some, but for some, it's like, oh, you were here 21 days before. Now I'll just give you 15. Now let's give you eight. Oh, you've been to treatment too many times. Now let's like cut you off. And well, I'm adamant about that. Something needs to change. I've got other issues here too. You know, I was. For years, I was against medication-assisted treatment. It just sounded like opiate replacement therapy. Right. I didn't like the idea of it. But I started studying it. And I started seeing the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the records from around the world. Mm-hmm. And medication-assisted wor- treatment works really, really well in countries that have universal health care. Yeah. It works where they have a, a combination of medical, psychiatric, psychological, social services right. that are accessible to all and then have, they have government people who can do it. Here, it's so piecemeal. We don't know what to do. You know, we have, we can't, but medication treatment without counseling mm-hmm. is useless. You know, if you take something that, that you can't get high, but you're not dealing with why you're getting high, you just right. go crazy. Right. You know Jody Barber. Yeah. Jody Barber was, uh, was telling me that she's getting calls from people all over the country. She was getting calls. These 16-year-old kids are getting these, uh, these pills by Snapchat in the mail and dying, yeah. which is true. We hear that all the time. But these other kids, are, they're taking their, their buprenorphine that they're getting from the doctor, mm-hmm. but they're not going to treatment. They're not going to counseling. They're just taking the buprenorphine like it's a magic yeah. pill. Yeah. And they're crazy. They're raging around the house. Mm-hmm. Their parents can't control them. They're saying, he's on his medication. Why is he so hard to deal right. with? You know, yeah. they just don't get it that this, it's, this is not a magic pill. Yeah. It needs to be a comprehensive approach mm-hmm. to treating people. And medication-assisted treatment works with, uh, with, uh, with buprenorphine, with uh, fentanyl too. It just takes longer. We have to take take a longer time to reset this 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 neural pathway mm-hmm. damage that they have that just leads them to this stuff. Yeah, and they can't stop it. Yeah, they need months to get their their brain reset, and we need to sit on them. We need yeah. to sit on them. We need to take away their ability to uh, to do that. You know, yeah. we we don't have the laws that allow us to do that. I mean, it's the same thing with the, the, the homeless crisis, a lot of the mental health homeless crisis. Sure. You know, we can't actually lock them up. It's against, they have autonomy. Mm-hmm. Well, these, these people have autonomy to go out and take some more fentanyl if it's there, yeah. you know, even though it's illegal. Yeah. We can't lock them in. Yeah. But when they're in our care in, uh, in residential treatment, we can. We can at least keep them away from their money. We can at least keep them away from their phone, right. from, their, from their connections. We can at least separate them from that. And we need to do that for a longer time. We need to have a longer time inpatient treatment. Would you say that there, there's a difference in the addict? I mean, the, the addict mind, I think there's the basics of it are all the same. But would you say that there's a difference now in the stuff these guys are dealing with that are coming in addicted to fentanyl as opposed to what you and I were dealing with, with oh, drinking? and It's not even the same. It's, yeah. I said that, uh, that the pharmaceutical synthetic opiate crisis made our made our business more complex by an order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. When fentanyl hit, it's like Jupiter slipped out of its orbit and crashed yeah. into the earth. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I, it just, it's, it's, it's not yeah. the same world. It's, it's an yeah. opiate, yeah. sure, and but I know it's this not is, the same this world. This issue is your most passionate issue because you and I talk a lot and you talk about it a lot. What do you think, like, the main thing that makes it the most complex? Well, another thing that's, uh, that needs to be known about fentanyl is that most of it's processed here. You know, fentanyl is so powerful, <coughs> but not much needs to be smuggled over the border. If you smuggle a, a sugar, sugar packet size over the border, you can make a pound of product here. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so that, that processing goes on here. When they get a pound over the border, they get 
you know, a warehouse full of this stuff. Yeah. And uh, they're not having to, they're, 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 it's, so we can't enforce our way out of it. And it's not coming across the border with people coming across the Rio Grande. It's not. It's we have so many business dealings with Mexico. We have the Mad, the, the, what, the, uh, all the, we have, they make car parts, they make clothes, they make all sorts of things for us. So there's containers and, and trains and trucks coming into the United States by the thousands every single day. Mm-hmm. And that's where it is. Yeah. That's where it is. They only have to, to get in a little bit yeah. to make a lot here. I remember there's a, a bunch of news not that long ago about, uh, it's right out one of the, the, the big fancy apartments on MacArthur. You know, you, you pass them on the freeway, the big high rise. One of them. There's one in Marina del Rey in an upscale uh, community, a condo community, townhouse community. They, they, they don't do it in the, they don't, they don't process this in the, uh, in, the, in the bad parts of town. They get a luxury house and they just put that over to processing, cutting, creating, pressing the pills. They do it all right here. Yeah. And they do it in the nice neighborhoods. And they do it under our noses, and and it's just going to get out. I mean, you know, we can't unless we we lock the borders down and don't let anybody through. Unless we can can physically check every single train car, every single truck, every single container that's coming in on a ship. Until we can physically check each one, we're never going to be able to interdict it. We're never going to be able to force our way out of it. Yeah, we have to treat our way out of it. We have to to. The only way to, to affect it is to reduce the demand. Mm-hmm. And we're the ones who have to reduce the demand by giving people something else, by helping right. people get off it. Nobody wants to be on it. Nobody loves being a yeah. fentanyl addict. But they can't help it. Once they do it, they're stuck. And their brain is just forcing right. them to do it. Yeah. So we need to reset their brains. Yeah. For somebody that's not an addict, I think they hear that somebody did fentanyl which is so deadly and think that's completely insane which it is completely insane that's what you're saying right but like let's talk a little bit tell me a little bit about like what usually leads up to somebody trying fentanyl for the first time or doing fentanyl it's like oh there's a lot of ways to that i mean there's you know all roads lead to rome it's a uh you know there's there are people who uh uh took pharmaceutical drugs for for uh, opiates for legitimate reasons uh, uh, surgery or an injury you know and they they really liked it when the when the thing dried up they just went to wherever they could get it because they're really gonna they didn't they weren't willing to change a lot of that happens a lot most people start out just like I did you know just like anybody else did mm-hmm. they start using they start drinking they start smoking pot in high school they start experimenting with things and uh, you know when they do fentanyl or do some opiate for the first time, it affects them so much. They love it so much that they keep trying something else, trying something else, and then they, until they look back and they say, "Oh, I don't know when I got addicted. I don't know when right. that, that that thing was, but I am, and I can't stop it, and I can't uh, change it now." Mm-hmm. And it's a terrifying thing because nobody knows when they cross the line from user to addict. Yeah, you know, it's it's something that you have to. It can only be looked at in hindsight, and just experimenting kids, you know, they, and the ones who, uh, who think that a per- Percocet is perfectly safe. Mm-hmm. So they, got, they, they read on Snapchat, they can get one in the mail for a few bucks, right. and it's not a Percocet. It's, gonna, it's, it's deadly. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty convinced that Prince was not a, you know, he died of a fentanyl overdose. Right. He was not what I would call an addict. He had hip pain. He danced and, and, uh, and hurt himself. He was, he was prescribed fentanyl, uh, per- Percocet, yeah. and he took Percocet regularly on prescription. When this whole crackdown happened, he couldn't get it from his doctor. So he yeah. sent one of his assistants out to get him some Percocet. That assistant came back 
with a, with a, with a bootleg. He took it once, not thinking it was anything but, a, but another Percocet, yeah. and died. Yeah. You know, that's my, my interpretation of it. And then the, the people that I know in the record business still, I said, yes, what happened, about what right. happened. Right. Yeah. So what is, uh, what's Joe's life like in sobriety today? Like, tell me about, tell me about that, how you feel, what's going on in your life? Well, it's been a long year, you know that. Yeah. Uh, lots of things are going on, you know. I, you've, you've seen it, you know, Camille is the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, South Coast Counseling makes us very, very happy. Mm-hmm. We're doing something that, uh, that is changing people's lives, and it's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to do it. Yeah. But it's the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. It's also full of tragedy. Yeah. It's also full of, of pain, but it's full of wonderful stories. Right. And wonderful people, and people you know, so many people we couldn't stand when they first showed up, right. become people we just love. Right. You know, and that's that's good. That's wonderful to see. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it's fun to see. It's fun to watch that that shift, that change happen in people, and have them turn around and help other people. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see somebody who was nasty and, and just unpleasant when they first showed up, dealing with somebody else who's nasty and unpleasant. Yeah. Because uh, they first showed up and, and helping them. Yeah. God, it makes you feel feel good doesn't yeah. it it's it's yeah it's worth it you know it's not worth the death i mean i would we, we could do without all that death we were just as fulfilled sure. when they weren't dying like flies yeah you know we could we could we need to stop that that's mm-hmm. just just that's that's terrible you know i've had a lot of postgraduate training and uh i have a lot of, a lot of the, the people we, we we learn how to deal with with these sorts of things we learn how to empathize without mm-hmm. without internalizing but our staff, you know, these are their peers. These are their friends. They don't have that kind of training. They have yeah. PTSD. Our own staff has PTSD yeah. from dealing with this much death. There's been nothing like it. Yeah. So everything has changed in the last four or five years yeah. from all the years before. I mean, from every, all the time that I've been, been sober and not in the business. Because we still dealt with heroin addicts, you know, years sure. ago. Uh, it was, everything changed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, it's just been demoralizing. And this, you know, fentanyl, you know what fentanyl is. It's, it's, it was never designed to be a, a simple pain relief drug. Right. It was for end of life. Right. It was for people with, with intractable pain who are going to die soon with uh, bone cancer to just keep them comfortable. Nobody cared you were going to be completely addicted to it because nobody's going to survive it. Right. So that's what it was for. Yeah. For getting it out here and, and, and people using it, this, it's, it's, it's unbelievable mm-hmm. that people would do that. But it's everywhere. Yeah. And it's cheap. There's also new ones coming out. There's also uh, several new, uh, that's another thing on, on uh, CNN, there's several new unrelated to fentanyl mm-hmm. uh, opiates that are coming out and they're selling them as fentanyl. Because they're even more powerful than fentanyl. They're just selling them as fentanyl because that's what people want. Yeah. But when they get arrested, well, it's not fentanyl, yeah. test it. Yeah. It's not even illegal because it's, it's a brand new compound yeah. and they're getting away with it. Yeah. And that's gonna hit here soon too. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about South Coast Counseling because you and I both are just just love it and oh, love it. I've fallen in love with that and it's a really special place to me, really special place to you. But I just yeah. want you to kind of talk about, you know, what your perception of South Coast Counseling is and and what people can expect when they come in and and what people have gotten out of it, out of it that have gone through there. Well, as you know, it went through a, a major restructuring over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I mean, I've always, I lived there. I love the place. I've, I've, I've spent probably a good year of my life in the last 10 years actually living in that place, taking care of people. I, I love it like, no, like very few people do. And I know the place like the back of my hand. And I know the people. 
but we've done, done a restructuring since you've come on as the executive director, since we've created this new board, since we're separating out and really focusing on its not-for-profit roots, mm -hmm. uh, we have a real opportunity to, to, to make it so much better than it ever was. Yeah. You know, we never really operated it that way. And I'm excited about it. I'm excited about uh, the plans you, you came up with, mm -hmm. Thank you, you know, because it's, it's, uh, it's really necessary. And, and we can do it. We can do it well. And we can, there's, the thing is, there's going to be a lot, people are, are listening to what mm -hmm. I'm saying. There are people who feel the way I do. Yeah. The thing about what goes on in this world is that there's a whole bunch of different stakeholders. You know, there's the, there's the, the, the government, there are the, the uh, pain lobby, there's the pharmaceuticals, there's the academics. They all, the politicians, you know, the politicians are not the government. Mm -hmm. But they all have these different agendas. And sometimes those agendas align, mm -hmm. but they're not the same agenda. You know, so that's how we ended up with the state that we're in the way that we're, we're trying to treat this opiate thing. Right. Well, the state needs to change. The state of the state we're in needs to change. But it's not gonna, we still have to deal with these agendas of all these other stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we have to lobby, we have to fight, we have to make our, our case known that we do this every day. Yeah. We know how, what works and what doesn't. And we know that people are dying and we know why they're dying. Yeah. And why they're dying is because they're not getting the support they need yeah. from, the, from, the, from the stakeholders supposed to be supporting them. Right. But people are listening. They know this. You know, they're talking around the kitchen table, so things are changing. And that's what I love about South Coast Counseling is being a not-for-profit. If we really focus on that not-for-profit, we really go out to, to say, look, we're here to do something good. Uh, we're not here to, to get rich. We're here to do something good. Mm -hmm. And we, we look at that and we say we, know, we can change things. We have a new way of doing it. Because we've done this for so long, we know what's going to work. And, uh, you know, we're good at what we do. Mm -hmm. And we've been doing it a long time but we have to get the people to listen. So it's, we're, we're in a, a flux period right now. Yeah. And I think it's a wonderful time. I mean, it, I, I would wish we were farther along, mm -hmm. but it's still exciting to be able to, to make some changes and be at the center of all that. Yeah. And I think South Coast Counseling is better, better positioned than anybody. We've got a better academic background. We've got a, 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 a history that nobody else has. Right. Nobody else has. We've got a history that gives us a, a set of, uh, I mean, a, a legitimacy mm -hmm. that nobody else has got. And, uh, and we've got a we've got a mission, and we, we believe in the mission. Yeah. And uh, I think we're going to do something really really good in the next yeah. couple of years by just putting our, our focus into this, yeah. and really letting people know that we're tired of the death. Right. We've been doing this for a long time. We're tired of the death. We don't want to see any more. Right. And we know what to do about it. Yeah. So support us. Yeah, I love it. Um, okay, so we we try to keep. The, I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> this is awesome, but we try to keep these right at an hour, and we're coming up on that I have one last question to ask everybody this question that comes in and usually what we do with this question is we cut it out as a short and really get it out there mm -hmm. what is your message for that person that's out there struggling with addiction struggling with alcoholism maybe that family member that has a loved one that's struggling with alcoholism what's your message to them well I mean the uh, the message we always send out is get help you know you can't do this on your own a family can't, uh, can't figure out what to do about their suffering child, mother, friend, mm -hmm. uh, cousin, whatever. They can't figure out what to do if they don't have the experience and they don't know where the resources are. Yeah. You know, they have to, to talk to somebody who knows and they can call us. Mm -hmm. If they can't call us, call somebody else. If they can't call us, call AA yeah. or call uh, NA or call, the, uh, the, or call SAMHSA, yeah. you know? But there are numbers to call and we'll, uh, we'll talk to somebody who knows better than they do and can point you toward the resources that can help. 
nobody's going to do this on their own. We didn't do it on our own. Yeah. You know, I didn't do it myself. The people who are doing it under us are not doing it themselves. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and they're turning around to help. They're, t- they're passing on what they learned. Yeah. I mean, there's a quick story I'm going to add to this so real quickly. Go ahead. I was, uh, you know, somebody, some, one of our, our old heroes had recently passed away and uh, died sober, a great thing. And I said, it's, we're so lucky to be in a place like this where we get to listen and learn from yeah. those people. When I find myself passing on something that I learned from somebody else, like Clancy or from, uh, from uh, uh, Clint Hodges or some of those people or, or Vincio, when I, when, I, when I pass something on that I learned from them, I hear their voice in my head and I feel their presence with me. Yeah. And, I'm, and I smile and I'm grateful for having known them. Mm-hmm. It's not they're, they're not lost. We're keeping them alive as we move them along. Yeah. And uh, that's what we're doing right now mm-hmm. to the people that we're, we're for the people that we're trying to treat. Yeah. You know, someday when we're gone, somebody's going to say, Chris, <laughs> Chris said something to me and, and, and he's gonna, they're going to tell something they learned from you and then they're going to think of Chris. Yeah. And you're going to be, you know, dead in your grave. Yeah. But you're going to smile in heaven, you know, right. or wherever you are. Yeah. You know, because uh, they uh, they'll remember that it makes yeah. it it makes it it makes an, an impact mm-hmm. that travels generations. Yeah. You know, we're, we're quoting Bill, right. you know, we're quoting, for, we're quoting Young, mm-hmm. and they've been dead for a long time. Yeah. So this stuff lives, you know, the stuff we're doing is, is real and it's good, and it's, it's, it's got a life beyond us. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that. If somebody's just starting out, if they're struggling, you know, the, the, the tendency, of course, is to isolate. Mm-hmm. The tendency, of course, is I'll fix it tomorrow. And that's your, your, your disease telling you, I know what I have to do. I just don't want to do it today, but I'll do it tomorrow. It's got to be done tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. It right. never comes unless somebody grabs you by the scruff of the neck. And, you know, somebody said, it was, it was Carrick who actually said this, I think. But he said, some door is going to stop your drinking and drug use. Yeah. You're going to go through some door. It could be our door mm-hmm. when you come in here, and we hope it is. It could be the, uh, the uh, door to a jail, mm-hmm. you know, or the hospital door. Mm-hmm. It could be the lid of your coffin. Yeah. But some door is going to close, right. and you will stop this. Right. And, uh, that's profound. I, I, yeah. And I like that. Yeah. I, I, that stuck with yeah. me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I, I, you know, Joe, you're one of the most pure people in this world that I've met, and mm-hmm. your heart for the addict and the alcoholic is like no other, and it's just a joy to be around you, and it was an honor to have you on the show. Thank oh, thank you. you very much. All right. It was all enjoyable.